The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. chapter 4. Bear with me if you will. I've had a bit of a cold this week and I apologize up front if I uh, sort of sniffle and cough on you this morning. It's not my intention, but uh, it may happen nonetheless. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're looking this morning at verses 1 through 5. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I read an article this week that sort of captivated my my interest. It caught my attention for sure because the title was certainly one that uh, was provocative to say the least. The title was this, After 40 years, megachurch pastor slams Christianity and quits. Well, that'll get your attention. This article was actually just from a couple of months ago. And uh, I began to, uh, to to read through the article, and it was an article that uh, was about a pastor by the name of Dave Gass, G-A-S-S. He's a handsome gentleman who pastored Grace Family Fellowship in Pleasant Hill, Missouri, just outside of, of Kansas City. Uh, pastor Dave had been a, a believer for over 40 years of his life. He had been a a pastor, church planter, for at least 20 years. And somewhere after 40 years of walking with Christ and 20 years of serving as a church pastor, his faith went off the rails. And he walked away from Christ completely. The way he went about doing this was by... uh, uh, the way that uh, most cool people do things these days, that when they have something important to say, they say it on social media. He put a lovely uh, a Twitter uh, sort of blast out. And it, I won't read you the whole thing, but I'll read you some ex- excerpts of what he said. He said this, After 40 years of being a devout follower, 20 of those being an evangelical pastor, I'm walking away from faith. Even though this has been a massive bomb drop in my life, it has been decades in the making. 
when I was in the eighth grade and I was reading Greek mythology, it dawned on me how much the supernatural interactions between the deity of the Bible and mankind sounded like ancient mythology. That seed of doubt never went away. He went on to talk about in, in his post uh, that he was raised in a hyper-fundamentalist Christian home where Christianity, in his words, quote, didn't work. He says the promises were empty. They were lies. Yet he grew up in a, in a home that was a, a, a ostensibly Christian, going to church on a regular basis. He said, said, quote, I was fully devoted to studying the scriptures. I think I missed maybe 12 Sundays in 40 years. I had completely memorized 18 books of the Bible and was reading through the Bible for the 24th time when I walked away. He said, as an adult, my marriage was a sham and constant source of pain. I did everything I was supposed to, marriage workshops, counseling, Bible reading, date nights every week, marriage books. But my marriage never became what I was promised it would be. An inescapable reality that I came to was that the people who benefited most from organized religion were the fringe attenders who didn't take it too seriously. The people who were devout were the most miserable, but just kept trying harder. Skipping down a bit, he says this, The massive cognitive dissonance, my beliefs not matching reality, created a separation between my head and my heart. I was gaslighting myself to stay in the faith. Eventually, I could not maintain the facade anymore. I started to have mental and emotional breaks. My internal stress started to show in physical symptoms. Being a pastor, a professional Christian, was killing me. So to save himself from all of that, he just walked away from the church. He says this, eventually I pulled the lever and dropped the bomb. Career, marriage, family, social standing, network, reputation, all gone in an instant. And honestly, I didn't intend to fully walk away. But the way the church turned on me forced me to leave permanently. He goes on to say, for those of you who want to yell at me, that's fine. I know that many will call me an apostate, say I was never really saved, and that I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing, and that a hotter hell awaits me. And to you I say I love you. My heart is tender towards you. To those who have been in my congregations or under my teaching, preaching, I sincerely apologize. I thought I was right. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I could fake it until I made it. I was wrong. I'm sorry. But I love you. It's a heartbreaking testimony, to be honest with you. There are other pieces and parts of his story that he shares that that shed some more insight into his journey. Uh, In the sort of the comments underneath the feed where he posted that information, uh, one of the deacons from the church in which he served uh, filled in at least one of the gaps that Pastor Dave Gass left out of his testimony. And that was that he had been having an ongoing uh, extramarital affair with a woman in the church for some time. But I don't read that really to you to shock you and 
not really even sure how it, it lands on you particularly. But it does bring us to the reality that not everybody who says they belong to Christ belongs to Christ. That's true of just average people who sort of attach themselves to the local church. And that's true of people who do the very thing that I'm doing right now, standing in a pulpit behind the Word of God and teaching it like Pastor Gass has done. But when we hear stories like that, or when it comes into sort of our circle of life and influence, and it's somebody that we know and somebody that we love that has that sort of an experience and a testimony, it has the effect potentially of shaking our faith. It has the effect of causing us to step back and, and reevaluate what we believe and what the church is all about and our foundations of our faith. And it can cause us uh, to have all sorts of responses from fears to anxieties to so on and so forth. Because we don't really have good categories in our minds for how is that journey possible like that. Well, I give you that story because... It was that very kind of thing that was going on in Ephesus when Timothy was trying to lead the church there. It was that very kind of thing that was going on that prompted Paul to write this letter that we're studying. There were elders from within that particular church who had fallen away from the faith and were teaching false doctrine and leading other people away. And he gets to the heart of that matter in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. He's been talking about it in different ways from chapter 1 on down. Really, he introduced us to this issue in chapter 1 a couple of times by charging Timothy to tell those who are teaching the false doctrine to stop it. And then by the end of chapter 1, talking about a couple of people who he says had shipwrecked their faith because they had drifted away. But now he comes full circle after talking about a bunch of other things to chapter 4 to getting really to the heart of the matter, to talking about this issue of apostasy. And he does it by introducing us really to sort of the identity of, of, of those who um, fall away, the identity of those who lead them away, and the ultimate source of that and the tactic that they use he talks about deserters. He talks about deceivers. And he's going to talk to us about demons. All of those things are a part of what he speaks to as he asks the church in Ephesus to consider the same thing that's being asked of us to consider. How is it that we understand things like what's going on in Ephesus? How is it we're to understand things that go on in our culture like with Pastor Dave Gass? I don't have time this morning, but you can Google it yourself and you can read the story of a man by the name of Bart Campolo. His father was a, a famous evangelical pastor by the name of Tony Campolo. If you were my age, you probably, and you grew up in the church, you probably read Tony Campolo books or at least heard of him or maybe heard him speak somewhere. He was famous and still is in some ways. He's just up in age now, uh, evangelical speaker. <clears throat> Bart is his son who followed in his footsteps became a, a, a traveling evangelist speaker, uh, high in demand, a, a youth pastor and other things. And if you read the story of Bart Campolo, it's equally heartbreaking to that of Pastor Dave Gass. He chronicles, in his own words, his departure from the faith. 
and has turned from the gospel to secular humanism, for which he is now an evangelist. What do we make of this kind of stuff? What do we make of that? How do we make sense of people who are that familiar with the truth of God's Word and with the Scriptures and with the Gospel and with doctrine just walking away? Well, that's the theme to which Paul writes to Timothy here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Because no doubt, this church was shaken to the core by this very issue. And they needed some wisdom. They needed to understand what in the world is going on. How could this possibly happen? And so he writes to explain to them exactly, precisely how this happens. And he gets direct. He gets to the point. And I think there are a few things that Paul is intending to do in this particular section of the book. I think he has really three aims in mind. The first thing I think we're going to see pretty readily is he wants to situate their situation sort of into the stream of redemptive history. He wants them to understand that what's going on in their particular church at that particular time is not particularly unique to them. That So he steps out into the broader flow of redemptive history and he helps them to see how what's going on in their church is not unique. It's happened before and he's going to explain to them that it's going to happen much, much more in the future. He needs them to know this. He needs them to know What's going on is a part of the flow of redemptive history. He wants to do that in order to mitigate their fears, in order to mitigate sort of their their confusion about what's happening in their church. I think secondly, he wants to do here is he wants to sort of shut down to the best of his ability the influence of the false teachers. So he exposes them for what they are in full, vivid, living color. And then thirdly, I think he wants to help the Ephesian believers there in the church Uh, He wants to help them to sort of protect themselves from being vulnerable to false teachers as they come. And so he writes these words. And he begins by saying, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Now as you read that, your thoughts are probably like mine. You immediately want to know, all right, what are these later times that he's speaking of? But Paul says, the Spirit expressly says, in In later times, some will depart from the faith. Well, what later times is he talking about? Now listen, we could could sort of dive down a wormhole on this issue this morning and go round and round, but we're going to resist that. I'm just going to say about this that you can read people debating this all day long. There are those who argue that the later times that he's talking about are a time that's already passed in history that was fulfilled not too long after perhaps Paul wrote these things. There are other scholars who will say, no, the time that he's talking about these later times are things that are far into the future. Times that haven't come yet, closer to the end. I think both of those are sort of wrong-headed ways of understanding exactly what Paul is talking about. When he speaks to later times, he's talking about, if I can just summarize it, he's talking about a, a, a period of time that is already present when he's writing, and yet at the same time is future in its fulfillment. That's why in passages like this one, you'll see him say things like, now the the Spirit expressly says, meaning that he's said this before at some time previous, that in later times some will depart from the faith. And then he goes on to situate in the middle of that what's going on in their church. So the idea is the Spirit has talked about this in the past, but what we're experiencing is a part of that. So 
the later days encompass the time in which he's writing and the events that are happening at this church. Incidentally, those later days have continued right into our time. When you see Paul speak of the later days or the last days, think in terms of the period of time that begins with the resurrection of Jesus and ends at the return of Jesus. That is the last days, the last times, later times. It's the, it's the period that we live in right now. And it's a lengthy period. It's a period that encompasses the times of the Ephesian church and the times of our church. We see this in other places. Hebrews chapter 1. You remember when we started our journey into Hebrews before we aborted that journey for a season. You remember the very beginning he says, you know, previously God spoke to us through the prophets and in many and various ways. He says, but in these last days, God has spoken through his son. These last days that are going on right now, he's spoken to us through his son. 1 John chapter 2, John writes, Children, it is the last hour right now. And that last hour and those last days continue right into our time. And, And the Spirit is telling us, he says, that in those last hours or last days, something's going to take place. People are going to fall away from the faith. Now, when he says the Spirit says this, there's some debate about what is he talking about. What is, what is it that Paul means when he says the Spirit expressly says that in the last days certain things are going to happen? Well, it could speak to a couple of different things. He could be talking about previous specific prophecy that we don't have recorded for us or that we don't have knowledge of, but that the church would have understood when he spoke to it. He could have been referencing in vague ways sort of all sorts of Old Testament Uh, sort of language that speaks to the issue of this falling away that was to come. After all, the Old Testament was ripe with example after example, right, of God's people who at one time followed him but turned off the rails and began to follow after the Baals or to follow after the gods of the people surrounding them. So apostasy, which we're going to talk about in a moment, this idea of falling away from the living God has been a reality as far back as the Old Testament for sure. People falling away and leaving. He could be talking about here the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 when Jesus said, and then many will fall away and betray one another. And he's talking about the last days, the last times. He says, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Or in Mark chapter 13 when he says this, If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and miracles to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And Jesus is talking about the end of the end times, just prior to his return. And he says if somebody starts telling you, hey, Christ is about to come back, you need to look around and and, and sort of take an assessment of the times. Because one of the clear sort of realities that's going to become more and more prevalent as we get closer to that time is that more false Christs and false prophets and false teachers are going to rise and they're going to lead people astray and their deceptions are going to be so convincing that even if it was, if it was possible that they would be so convincing that even the elect could be pulled away.
And of course, Paul's previous words to these Ephesian elders before he left them, when he established the church, was a warning. He said in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It doesn't really matter specifically what he had in mind. What matters is that Paul is making something very, very clear to this church. He's making something very clear to them that needs to be very clear to us. And this is the point. The Holy Spirit has made it clear through multiple avenues of communication with His people that there will be a consistent and increasing falling away from the Gospel as we get closer to the return of Jesus. We should not be surprised by it. We should not be shocked by it. It shouldn't rattle our foundations of our faith. We shouldn't wring our hands and freak out about it. It is precisely what the Spirit of God has told us will indeed happen. And that's what He wants this church to remember. Listen, what's going on is not something for you to be shaken about. Brokenhearted, yes. Wounded, yes. But shaken at the core of your faith, no. Because this is in fact a validation of what the Spirit has been saying for a very long time. This is the very thing the church ought to expect as the last times move ahead. The issue of falling away. A word we use theologically is the word apostasy. It's not a word you use in your common language all the day. It's a word that's sort of a transliteration of a Greek word, apostasia. And it just simply is a word that has a, a very clear meaning. It means to depart from the faith. To depart from the faith. That's what apostasy is. It's when somebody who has previously attached themselves to the church of Jesus Christ and claimed to be a believer now renounces the gospel and walks away. That's apostasy. That's what that is. One scholar by the name of Bowder said this. He defined it this way. He said, apostasy is the serious situation of becoming separated from the living God after a previous turning towards Him by falling away from the faith. Now, as we think about apostasy, we need to think about two things that we need to remember. We need to remember that this is not referring to a couple of things. What Paul is not referring to here when he speaks of this falling away or this apostasy is he's not speaking about people who were once genuine believers who have somehow now lost their salvation. He's not talking about that. Another thing he's not talking about is he's not talking about people who are are genuine believers but are struggling with doubts, who are struggling to work through various facets of their faith. That also is not what he's talking about here. The word that's translated falling away here is a very strong word. It's stronger than the words Paul has already used in chapter 1 to describe a shipwreck and some of these other things. This word carries with it a very clear connotation of an intentional turning away, an intentional repudiation of what was previously confessed. Very much like what we heard from Pastor Dave Gass in the opening illustration. I once confessed this doctrine, and now I've repudiated it and walked away from it. I thought I was right, but now I know I was wrong. An intentional renunciation of the gospel. That's what apostasy is. 
We have abundant Old, Old Testament examples of this. King Amaziah, you can read about him in Second Chronicles chapter 25. It tells us in verse 2 that and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, comma, yet not with a whole heart. Yet not with a whole heart. You read down a few verses later in verse 14. After Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, his battle took place. He brought the gods of the men of Seir and he set them up as his gods and he worshipped them, making offerings to him. He served God, but not with his whole heart. And before you know it, he's bringing in false gods and bowing down and worshipping them. And so the epitaph of his life at the end, in verse 27, says that he's known as a man, a king who turned away from the Lord. The New Testament is ripe with examples as well. The most, uh, the most egregious one and the most obvious one is Judas Iscariot, Jesus' uh, own inner circle disciple who walked away, repudiated the faith, denied Christ. And back in chapter 1, Paul talks about in this particular church, uh, two men by the name of Hymenius and Alexander who did that very thing. The point is, of all of this, we should not be surprised when people depart from the faith. We shouldn't be surprised. In fact, we should expect it. We should expect it. I read another article that I don't have time this morning to uh, sort of walk through. But I'll give you the title of it, and that way uh, you can uh, sort of look, look it up on your own if you're interested. It was uh, an article from The Atlantic, and it's called The Deepening Crisis in Evangelical Christianity. The Deepening Crisis in Evangelical Christianity. This was from July 5th, just a couple weeks ago. And I'll give you sort of the, the essence of the article. Uh, the es- essence of the article, written really uh, sort of from, from a skeptical viewpoint of conservative Christianity and, and, and providing commentary from liberal theologians uh, from the sort of the Christian camp. Uh, it's a whole article that is full of, of pure hand-wringing uh, over the issue of Donald Trump. And the whole issue that they're making an issue of is that evangelical Christianity is in this major crisis right now. All of these young people are departing from the faith because the evangelical church has supported Donald Trump as president. And so all, the whole article is just a bunch of hand-wringing of, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? All these people are walking away from the church. All these young people are walking away, and it's all because of Donald Trump. Now, regardless of what you think about Donald Trump, um, I don't intend to speak to that issue this morning. I will tell you this. Young people are walking away from the church, but old people are too. A lot of them. And it has absolutely nothing to do with Donald Trump. It has everything to do with what Paul speaks to in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And all this hand-wringing about, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We've got to do something. We've got to change our politics. We've got to change our social stuff. We've got to abandon some of this controversial stuff in the Bible so that we can keep all these people from walking away. It's nonsense. In fact, Paul argues that that's the very thing we should expect. Let me just say to you something. If a person's attachment to Christianity only runs as deep as whoever the president is at a particular time and moment in history. Their faith is a sham. And it's best that it get exposed as that for them and for the church that they're associated with. Because there's nothing good to come from it. Paul says we should expect these things. 
We don't have to like it. We don't have to be good with it. We need to pursue everybody that's lost with the gospel and and bring the gospel to them and call them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It should break our heart that people around us are lost, but it should not surprise us when people who at one point attach themselves to the church and the gospel walk away from it at another point. It's happened all along. And it continues to happen and will continue to increasingly happen as we get closer to the end. We need to understand how it goes on. What happens? How is it that this goes down? And he goes on to tell us that people become deserters because they believe deceivers. People become deserters of the gospel because they believe deceivers who give them another message that they embrace. Like Bart Campolo, for instance who rejects biblical Christianity and the gospel and embraces another message. He embraces secular humanism and becomes sort of an evangelist for that message. It's exactly what Paul speaks to here in verse 2. He says, these people will depart from the faith, they'll leave, they'll fall away, and they'll do it through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So how is it that people become dissenters? How is it that people walk away? They walk away because they believe a different gospel. They believe a different message. They embrace a different truth. And that truth comes into their lives through an evangelist for whatever that truth is. And Paul categorizes every evangelist for every truth apart from the gospel that stands in contradiction to the gospel. He categorizes them under one big title. Liars who have a seared conscience. Every false teacher falls under that category, according to the Apostle Paul. Regardless of their personality, regardless of how winsome they might be, regardless of how educated they might be, regardless of how convincing they might be, regardless of how much you might like them on a personal level, at the end of the day, they're a liar with a seared conscience. That's what Paul says. He says every false teacher is a liar, and they proffer lies. They're liars who package lies as the truth and they sell them cheap to anybody who will buy them. And I think, for at least in my sensibilities, there's two sort of flavors of this. There are those who lie wittingly and there are those who lie unwittingly. There are those who are false teachers and they know full well that's exactly what they are. And they intentionally set out to deceive for their own personal gain or for some other reason. And then there are those who, who do so unwittingly who have believed the lies themselves and believe them to be true and and push them upon you and me and anyone else who will listen because they believe them themselves. Regardless of whether a a false teacher is one who's doing it wittingly or one who's doing it unwittingly, at the end of the day, the result is the same. The result is the same. He says these liars, they have a seared conscience. What does that mean? What does it mean when he says that false teachers are liars who have a seared conscience? Well, this this word that uh, is translated seared, it's the word of like uh, a hot thing that brands something. It really carries two connotations. It carries sort of a a branding, where if you think of sort of livestock that are branded, what does a brand do? It, It marks off somebody as... Belonging or a cattle as belonging to a particular rancher, right? It marks off that person and it identifies who they belong to. 
So he's going to go on to tell us that these, that these deceivers who, who spread their lies are driven by demons who really are associated with Satan. And so the reality here is he could be saying, at least at one level, that these people have a seared conscience and their conscience is marked by their master. They're branded by the one that they follow. But the other connotation of this, I think, makes more sense in Paul's context, or excuse me, in Timothy's context. It's the idea of cauterization. Do you know what cauterizing is? you know what that is? Like you burn something, you have some sort of a physical thing that's giving you problems, and you cauterize it, you burn it, and what does that do? It sort of kills the the nerves around that. So, you know, I've got this thing on my arm and it hurts. And so you go to the doctor and he's like, oh, I'll cauterize it. He burns that sucker and it doesn't feel great to get burnt. But when it's done, it kind of it kind of sears all the nerves around that particular thing. And what happens? You don't feel it anymore, right? You just It's numb. You don't feel it. I remember when I was a kid, I used to get a, a, these, these uh, like canker sores in my mouth that were just awful when I would get sick. And it would be horrible. I couldn't swallow it in my throat. I couldn't swallow anything. I couldn't eat. So I would go to my doctor, and what he would actually do, and this sounds horribly disgusting to talk about, but he would, he would stick this thing down into my throat, and he would cauterize those things. He would burn them to some degree. And, and you know, it didn't feel great to have it done, but afterwards I couldn't feel them anymore. I could swallow and I could eat. And what he's saying here, he's using that sort of an illustration here to talk about what happens to the conscience of false teachers who are liars. That what happens is the conscience is sort of the alarm clock for sort of our morality that the Lord builds into us. It's sort of the the, the internal alarm system that God builds into humanity that affirms us when we're doing what's right and it sets off all sorts of alarms when we're doing things that are wrong. There are reasons why when, when you go to do something that is wrong and evil, there's something inside of you that says, do not do this. This is wrong. It's not my voice in your head. It's the Spirit of God has built into you a, a, a system called a conscience that goes off when you're violating what's true and good and right. And what Paul is saying is that these false teachers, what they are is they're liars who have cauterized their conscience. They've suppressed it and fought against it so long that they've burnt it and seared it to the point that they don't even feel it anymore. That they can sin and go on and lie and continue to deceive and they have no bones about it anymore. It doesn't even bother them anymore. They don't even feel it. The conscience doesn't even ring. Conscience, you can think of it as like an alarm clock, right? Yeah, how many of you have an alarm clock? you have an alarm clock? So what is, you know, you know how this works, right? It works like in your life like it does mine. You, you need to get up at uh, 6 a.m. So you set the alarm clock for what time? How many of you set it for 6 a.m. if you want to get up at 6 a.m.? How many of you set it at some time before 6 a.m.? Why do you set it before 6 a.m.? Because you know, you know, right? It's going to ring and the first time it rings, what are you going to do? You're going to hit snooze, right? You're going to shut that thing up. How many of you have more than one alarm set? Because you know you're going to hit that thing two or three times. You you understand that if you do that enough, the alarm clock becomes completely useless and incidental. You're basically just getting up when you want to anyway. It no longer serves any real purpose in your life except something to whack on the way to waking up in the morning. It's kind of what happens to the conscience. When you continually suppress it and push it away and hit the snooze button on it, eventually it doesn't function anymore and it has no no use in your life because you've ignored it. And that's what 
liars do. That's what these false teachers do. He goes on to describe sort of their tactic in the church at, at, at Ephesus, these, these false teachers with a seared conscience who are leading people away from the faith. The particular flavor of this that's going on at Ephesus is a, a teaching called asceticism. And again, this is another theological word, asceticism, that doesn't really mean much to you probably, but I can define it for you very simply. Asceticism is sort of a, sort of a doctrine that is built off of the idea that we can earn God's favor by abstaining from earthly pleasures. That we can earn God's favor by abstaining from earthly pleasures. And so in this particular case, these, these particular uh, sort of flavor of asceticism that's being taught by the false teachers with a seared conscience in Ephesus is this. He tells us right back there at the beginning of it. He says, Later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And what do they do? They forbid marriage and they require abstinence from food that God created. So we get the idea here. The false teachers have come along into the church and they've abandoned the gospel for some flavor of asceticism. And asceticism is just one of a thousand different ways of abandoning the gospel for another sort of system of works-based righteousness. It's just one way of saying the gospel of grace does not hold. That salvation is not truly by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that salvation, or at least advancement in faith, comes through working it out in some way in your life. By either doing things or abstaining from things. In the case of asceticism, it's from abstaining from things. You can become more holy by not getting married. By not engaging in sexual relations. By not enjoying foods that you like, most likely meat in this case. It, this kind of thing comes at you in two ways. It comes in as doctrine that says you have to abstain from these things in order to be saved. Or it comes at you in the way of doctrine that says you have to abstain from these things in order to advance in your faith. It doesn't really matter which way it comes at you. Either way, if you embrace that kind of a belief system, it will shipwreck your faith and lead you away from the gospel. It's interesting that in Ephesus, the two things that these particular teachers are calling people to abstain from in order to be holy are sex and food. I guess if you're going to come into a human being's life and, and, and you're going to come with this argument that the way to, to be holy is to abstain, abstain from things that bring uh, earthly pleasure, you could hardly do better than to pick Sex and food, right? It's okay. It's okay. I'm not going to go too far down here. You can relax. I'm not going too far. But it's interesting that this first piece where he talks about marriage and sexuality, he's basically, they're basically teaching that in order to gain favor with God, that people should not marry and therefore not be sexually active, that they should abstain from those things and, and not permit those things into their life in order to gain favor with God. And the problem is that it's not a suggestion, but they're laying this out as a requirement. As a requirement. Now, like all good heresies, this one comes with a little seed of truth, right? Because Paul has said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, things like this. In 1 Corinthians 7, 1, he says, Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
And down in verse 7, he says of that same chapter, I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God. Now, what in the world was Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Well, Paul was making the argument that he is a single man. That the choice that he has made, the gift that God has given him, is the ability to, to show self-restraint and self-control in the area of marriage and sexuality in order to devote himself fully to the work of the ministry that God has put in front of him. And so he's saying, listen, this is a good thing for me. And I wish other people had this same gift. But then in verse 2 of that same chapter, he says this. He recognizes that God has neither called nor equipped everyone for that call. He says, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So the idea is, Paul says, hey, if you can be single, if God's given you that gift and you can devote yourself fully to the service of the Lord like I have, that's a good thing. But I recognize that God hasn't gifted everybody like that, that everyone has their own gift. And for most people, that's not their gift. And if that's not you, then you need to get married and have a wife and you need to get married and have a husband. And you need to have normal sexual relations within the context of your marriage as a part of the pleasure of life that God has created. And he goes on in that same chapter to sort of extol sort of the, create, the, sort of the, 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 the critical role of sexual intimacy in human relationships. And in verse 3 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he says this. The husband, by the way, I switched over to the New Living Translation for this because the ESV started talking about conjugal Stuff. I don't even know what that meant. I didn't think you might either. So we're going to use NLT because it makes it clear. It says the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. And the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. And he goes on to say, do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time. So that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's recognizing that God has created human beings, men and women, with, with a natural sexual appetite and a desire to engage in something that God has created to be good and to be holy and to be pleasurable within the context of the covenant relationship of a husband and a wife. It's a good thing. That God has created, not a bad thing. And he's saying that it's such a good and such an important thing that it should be a regular part of the regular life rhythm of a husband and a wife because when you start to cut that piece out of the marriage covenant relationship, then you open yourselves up to all sorts of sexual temptations because there's a natural desire that God has built you with. So to, to come into people's lives and to artificially forbid that is going to do nothing but create chaos and ruin. Elsewhere in the Scriptures, we don't have time. But you can go back, read the Song of Solomon if you want to understand, you know, that God has created sexual intimacy and the covenant relationship of husband and wife as a good thing to be celebrated and enjoyed. Just as a side note, how many of you have ever visited a Shaker church? Nobody should raise their hand because they don't exist anymore. But in the 1700s, there was a, a cultish, Christianish cult called the Shakers. And one of the pieces of their core doctrine was that they forbade marriage and they demanded celibacy. 
Now, let me just say this. If you're wanting to go start your own religious movement, that's a stupid doctrine to start with. Because you're just not going to last very long. The reason you've never visited a shaker church is because they're all dead. They didn't get married and they didn't procreate and there are no more of them. So to come into an, uh, a movement just from a practical standpoint and forbid marriage is just foolish. It's death to the movement. It goes on from that to talk about food. They're, they do the same thing with food, the false teachers. They come in and they take something that God has made good to be enjoyed, food. And they say, no, you're to abstain from that in order to be holy, in order to gain favor with God or to advance in your walk with God. You have to abstain, you have to withhold, you can't touch, you can't eat certain things, meats and so forth. Listen, we were on vacation uh, a week ago out in California. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you, there's this glorious place out there called In-N-Out Burger. I don't know if you've ever been there before. It's Christianized because there's a Bible verse on the bottom of each cup. I'm just telling you that much. Um, the food is holy because of that. Um, but they have the best greasy cheeseburgers, fries that you've ever had. You do praise God when you eat them. I, I, I'm just telling you, you do. In fact, every day but one day when we were there, we were at In-N-Out Burger at some point. Why? Because we enjoyed it. Because we liked it. It's good. Just like sexual intimacy, food is another category of life that God has given us abundant ways of, of meeting our, our sort of nutritional needs, and they're meant to be enjoyed. He could have made every food that we have access to taste like tofu, right? He could have. He could have said, hey, you've got to eat stuff to stay alive. It all tastes like tofu. Suck it up and do it so you don't die. But he doesn't do that. He creates us this bounty of a world in which we have thousands of choices of wonderful things that we can enjoy, that we can eat and enjoy and find pleasure in. They're good things. Now, granted, both things like sexual intimacy and food can be taken outside of the bounds in which God has designed for them to run in our lives. You can take sexual intimacy outside of the covenant relationship of husband and wife and you're going to shipwreck yourself in a hurry. You take food outside of the boundaries and you move it into this sort of a category to where you become gluttonous and you're going to ruin your body and wreck it. But at heart, they're good things that God has created for our enjoyment. For somebody to come along and say, in order to be holy, you have to abstain from these things? It's a lie. It's a lie. It's just another form of a works-based righteousness that will shipwreck the soul of anybody who believes it. And by the way, there's still vestiges of this hanging around right now, aren't there? I don't mean to offend anybody that comes out of Roman Catholicism or maybe has relatives who are part of that, but if you know, if you know anything about Roman Catholicism, what must every priest do? Take a vow of celibacy. Abstain from marriage. What must you not do on Fridays? Those of you who are formerly practicing Roman Catholics. You don't eat meat on Fridays. Abstain from meat. To abstain from sexual intimacy, to abstain from meat. This is just a repackaged version of what was going on in Ephesus. Just vestiges of the same thing. It's coming alongside of people and saying, listen, it's not enough to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by grace through faith, confessing your sin and, and 
giving your life solely to Him, believing that His, His death on the cross is fully sufficient to cover your sin and to save you to the fullest extent. All of those are ways of saying, that's not enough. You need to also abstain from this. Take away these pleasures from your life. Do this, don't do that. Adding works to your salvation. And it's a, it's a lie from the pits of hell. It's proffered by liars who have a seared conscience. And behind all of it, Paul says, is the doctrine of demons. At the end of the day, it's theology that comes from the pit of hell. That's what it is. It perverts the true gospel. It shipwrecks the faith. And it turns the gospel of grace into a gospel of human achievement. Listen, the world is full of false teachers and false prophets. They come in religious garb and they come in secular garb. And they're constantly trying to sell you philosophies, theologies, belief systems that eat away at the gospel of the grace of Jesus. That tell you that you have to do certain things or abstain from certain things in order to be made right with God. And they're all various forms of the same demonic lie. And they're being put in front of you by people who are liars with a seared conscience, whose desire is to lead you away from the truth of the gospel. Satan will attack the truth of the gospel one of two ways, largely. He'll do a full frontal attack on the individual who embraces it, i.e. modern China, where they're putting, I read this week, the government facial recognition software and cameras inside the churches that are authorized so that they can identify who's attending in order to be able to imprison them later. That's one way to come at the gospel, is to attack the people who believe it. Historically, it's never worked, and just like in China today, the gospel just flourishes in that kind of an environment. But the other tactic that Satan will use, if he doesn't come at it, if he's not successful at coming at the gospel with a full frontal attack, he'll just try to to drown it in a sea of competing philosophies, which is what he does in the United States of America right now. He doesn't need to attack the gospel front on because he's just drowning the message in a sea of lies that people all around us are embracing. So what are we to do with all this stuff? What does all this have to do with us? Well... Let me just close by saying this. I think Paul would say to us if he's in front of us right now, you need to, the same thing he said to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Make sure what you've embraced is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and not some contorted version of it where there's works righteousness attached. I think he would say, secondly, as a church, manage your expectations. People are going to fall away. It's going to cross your path and your radar at some point. It shouldn't shake you. It should just validate the truth of Scripture because we're told this multiple times. And I think following that, he would say, be careful who you sit under. Be careful who you listen to. Who you allow to be your teacher. Whether it be in person or on blogs that you read or YouTube videos that you watch or wherever it is that you allow somebody to, to instruct you. Because there are some winsome liars out there with a seared conscience who do not have your best intentions at heart. We'll seek to draw you away from Christ. And as a church, I think he would say to us, we have to be watchful in the body. We have to be watchful. No tolerance for other gospels apart from the gospel of grace. 
So listen, I hope when you leave here today, you will enjoy a lovely meal somewhere that's full of meat or whatever it is that you enjoy. If you enjoy broccoli, then may you feast on broccoli today to your heart's content. If you're married, enjoy some time with your husband or wife as a true gift from the Lord, giving thanks to God for the gift of pleasure that He's given. Don't allow liars to tell you what God has given as good is evil. Enjoy it with the wholehearted thanksgiving to God, celebrating a God who is a giver of good gifts to His people. Let's pray. Lord, You're good. You're kind to us. Your desire is not that we would live life empty, but that we would live life that's full. Your desire is not that we would live lives in misery, but that we would live lives filled with joy to the fullest. Your desire for your people is a good desire. That we might be free in you to enjoy the bounty you've created with hearts filled with gratitude to you, recognizing that every good thing in this world we experience is a gift from you. Every nice meal that we have is a direct gift from a good God who loves us and desires for us to enjoy life. And every time we have time with our spouse together in intimacy, That is a direct gift from You, a good God who desires to bring good pleasures into our life and has gifted us with such ability. We thank You that You desire good for us, that You want us to live joyful lives filled with good things. And yet at the same time, Lord, we recognize that apostasy is a real danger in the world around us, that there are false gospels that come at us all the time. Lord, protect us by Your Spirit. May we always, Lord, be sensitive to the conscience You've built inside of us and never suppress it. Lord, help us always to cling to the truth that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Preserve us by the true gospel, we pray, for Your sake alone. Amen.